and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, the Gender and Sexuality Editor at LARB, and I'm joined in the studio today by Medea Ocher, who is LARB's Managing Editor and my boss. (laughs) (laughs) Hi, Eric. Hi, Dea. You are fired. (laughs) (laughs) Today, we're speaking with Michael Arsenault, author of I Can't Date Jesus, Love, Sex, Family, Race, and Other Reasons I've Put My Faith in Beyonce. This book I have been recommending to almost anyone who will listen because I think it's both highly readable, like it's just very entertaining. Oh, well, actually something that I was wondering while I was reading that book and when we got to talk to Michael was as a gay Southerner, I don't know if you would identify as such, would you? (sighs) Southerner is like a, it's complicated because of growing up in Kentucky. And oh. like, no, but you're like not Midwest, but you're also not South. If, I will say it feels like the South to me, but it it's not like, like south. deep South. Okay. As a shallow Southerner, <laughs> <laughs> did you identify with Michael's story? Yes. So there's a number of things that were kind of interesting to me about Michael's story. One is the kind of growing up in the South and the way that homophobia and homosexuality more generally kind of like cashes out in Southern cultures, which is not, I I don't want to say actually that like the South is, it's like a more homophobic, less homophobic thing. It just, it's just different. The thing, though, that I was very surprised to hear is that he grew up Catholic. And we talk about this in the interview is that I don't have any numbers for this, but I can tell you anecdotally, like Catholics in the South is like not a huge, it's not like coastal, like New England. Right. It's kind of like a, you're a rarefied bird. And so like kind of connecting on that level is like, oh, that's, I mean, and neither one of us are practicing. We're deeply lapsed Catholics. Yeah. But like that kind of connection was interesting, you know, because he talks about how his mom actually prefers, she's very old school in a way that I rarely ever even see anymore in preferring Latin masses. So again, like all of that part was like, I found like really fascinating. Yeah, it's a really fascinating story and and very funny writer. um, It's hysterical. I mean, his like stories about his sexual foibles and like his, the hazards of dating, I thought were really laugh out loud funny. Yeah. And we did talk to him about that. Yes, we did. And found out that he's actually underneath it all, a romantic. Well, let's get to the interview. Okay, let's do it. We're excited to have Michael Arsenault in the studio with us today. Michael is a Harlem-based writer whose essays on culture, sexuality, religion, race, and Beyonce have appeared in Essence, Complex, The Guardian, New York Magazine, The New York Times, and The Root, among other publications. His first book, I Can't Date Jesus, Love, Sex, Family, Race, and Other Reasons I've Put My Faith in Beyonce, was published in July by Atria Books. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. So, uh, Michael, I was hoping that maybe you could just, like, read us a quick passage so that people can get a sense of the voice and what you're talking about. This is from the introduction, Where'd You Go? Before that day, I hadn't been to church in five Beyonce albums. Well, not for service anyway. In that span of time, I'd stepped inside two separate churches for three funerals. But as my mama and most faithful churchgoers will promptly make clear, solely stepping into the house of the Lord isn't the same thing as attending mass or church service and truly engaging in praise and worship. Until that April morning, the closest I had come to church attendance was watching WeTV's Mary Mary, a reality series about that gospel duo and body roll into tracks of theirs like God and Me. But only the chopped and screwed versions because as native of Houston, Texas, everything sounds better to me chopped and screwed, jams for Jesus included. 
Other quasi-religious activities for my churchless life included posting contemptuous social media updates about the Baptist church across the street from my Harlem apartment and how incredibly bad singing coming out of it was disrespectful to Jesus. Even if I had become an estranged acquaintance of Jesus, I didn't feel he deserved of shaky vocals having soloists and an equally terrible choir shouting off-key about Christ's love. If Jesus Christ was nailed to a cross in order to die for our sins, the least any church singers can do is find the correct note. Thank you so much. I <laughs> Thank love you. That. That's perfect. So wait, let's actually start there because mm-hmm. like I also served some time in the Catholic Church <laughs> as a child. <laughs> I'm like what we would call a lapsed, lapsed, lapsed. You know, the kind of Catholic where it's like you wake up one morning and you look around and you're like, what's up with everybody's forehead today? Oh, yes, I actually did. Have, and then you're I like, have that moment. Yes. damn it, I got to call my mom. Happy Ash Wednesday. Right. You know, hope everybody's doing well. I hope you enjoyed the fish. <laughs> exactly. Oh, that was another thing that I kept, yeah. like, when you were saying you enjoy a fried catfish sandwich on Friday, I was like, oh, right. Yes. That's is the that thing a that Catholic I should... thing? Yeah, yeah. During it's fish Lent, on Fridays. you can't eat meat, meat. Oh, of course. Which is always, like, when my family is observing. This is really going to trigger a lot of my Jewish anxieties, you guys. <laughs> now the other Christian denominations do it. No. A lot of my friends now, they'll do it. I was like, you're doing that to lose weight. That's not about this. <laughs> <laughs> the fish on Friday thing. Well, that's always when it's like whenever it is Lent. I will, of course, never remember. So I find out from family members that are like, they don't actually even ask anymore. You know, like, oh, what did you give up? But instead, it's like I'll send them some photo of like, oh, my God, you would not believe this burger that I just have. And they're like, well, we're all over here just having fish. <laughs> <laughs> I love that you troll them. <laughs> yeah. Well, I know I don't do it. Because then I'm like, oh, God, that's right. Anyways, yeah, trying to exercise more. But anyways, can you talk about growing up Catholic? Because there are some ways in which I think Catholicism is probably, I'm going to get trolled for saying this, but like kind of gay in itself. Like it's big on pageantry. It's got magic mysticism. like a bad bitch at a white party. Totally (laughs) proved nonetheless by Rihanna in that turn at the Met Gala Ball, right? When she wore this amazingly glittered. Benedict would have worn that. (laughs) And some she nice Gucci sandals. Behind closed doors. Yes. She yeah. looked much better. She um, did. So can we talk about kind of what was your experience of Catholicism? And do you carry any of that with you today? I carry the guilt and shame. I don't think that ever leaves you. My mom is, it's interesting. I think most people don't assume black people to be Catholic. But mm-hmm. I read recently, like in the Atlantic, there are apparently more black Catholics than there are in the AME church. And I think yes. it also has a lot to do with kind of immigrant populations because I think immigrant populations is keeping Catholicism number <laughs> alive <laughs> and they're the ones filling the churches. But yeah, most of my family is from Louisiana. So it's like French and so, so they tied to right. Catholicism, but most of them have fleed. So everyone around me had already left, like my family, they were not Catholic anymore. But my mom is old school Catholic. She misses mass in Latin. And the priest turns yes. his back to the congregation. She, yeah loves the tradition of it. I will say, I think Catholicism in terms of the mass, it could be boring, but I also think it's beautiful in its pageantry. But yeah. but because of my mom, like we went to church every Sunday. It wasn't an option. I went to catechism, which is the equivalent of like vacation Bible school, Sunday yep. school, whatever. CCD every yeah. weekend. <laughs> and it just it was a lot of indoctrination. I think at the time it was helpful because I think as I write about my dad, that was a difficult, that was difficult of its own thing. But mm. I think it was also kind of isolating because you know, on one end, it, I saw how important faith was to my mom because she's the strongest person I know and has a lot to do with her faith. But at the same time, like, oh, I'm gay and you all don't speak kindly. Because there are, also, there are a lot of lay Catholics. Like, you go to Mass all the time, but you don't really buy into all that. No, my mom yeah. is, she gets like the Catholic lead newsletter, which is oh, very so conservative. she's yes. serious, she's, serious. Yes, she's serious okay. Catholic. So she was very strict. You went to church. Like, I talk about how we were given like the equivalent of people trade sports cards, but we have saint cards. 
So it has oh, St. Martin, yeah. the Taurus, St. Joseph, like all these different saints, watched biblical cartoons, had child Bibles. She always gave prayer books. I was, we wore scaplins. She always had new rosaries. For a long time, she only recently stopped. She'll probably do it again during the holidays. She still anoints me with oil before I go to the airport. Wow. There's always holy water in the house that you can bless yourself before you leave. So that was the kind of, I was very Catholic. Very and I also Catholic. think Catholic in a way that typically, at least with Americans, they would associate with white Catholics who are like hardcore. But like yeah. my mom is very much that Catholic person. And I think initially with my church, we ended up having a black priest who used to be Methodist. And mm. so he incorporated oh, a lot of the things that you would associate with the black church, kind of like a gospel choir, more lively, more. My mom was touch and go with that. She because did not again, prefer a, that. Yeah, she's a traditionalist. She okay. liked mass as it was, as she grew up originally in Latin. So she like, yeah, again, I kind of get it, but I just felt the religion ultimately was isolating. So I'm not an act. I say I'm a recovering Catholic. <laughs> I know that that tends to offend people. Like I remember Andrew Sullivan. I had a, some in conversation with him. He was as awful as one can imagine. And he seemed so <laughs> offended that I said recovering Catholic. It's tongue in cheek, but I personally feel like I'm recovering Catholic because you carry a lot of guilt and shame with no matter yeah. what you're doing. So I carry yeah. that with me always. I always feel guilty about something, even though I know I'm being ridiculous, but I can't shake it. But yeah, I haven't been to Mass in forever. Have no intention to go. <laughs> yeah. I write it like in the book. That was a Baptist church that I went to. It was actually a quite progressive church. I did my research before I went in. But I am I don't consider myself in the Christian league anymore. One thing that I, I wanted within this explanation and the background and the context of your faith when you were a child and your mother's faith, could you explain the title and uh, the faith in Beyonce? Well, the subtitle was why I enjoy it. They wanted something that kind of, I guess, helped explain the book. Because okay. I think that Jesus might have threw too many people off. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. I also think ultimately, like, shout out to Matter of Cash. It just turns out to be clever. But I Can't Date Jesus is actually the title chapter. The title chapter is about my mother. It's based on a conversation that we had. And I say this respectfully. Again, I really do respect faith. I respect religion. Mm-hmm. I understand how important it is because people without it, you know, developing your own sense of some spiritual awakening can be difficult. It's hard. And, and it can be yeah. very lonely. Yeah. So I understand. But at the same time, I also think religion, there are a lot of brilliant people who are religious, but religion often makes brilliant people suspend their better senses. And I say that with respect to this idea, which is actually Catholic doctrine, and a lot of Christian denominations believe this. They know that you're born gay. Catholics, like the Pope recently, he Mm. understands that you're born that way. But I think the issue is that they look at you, if you are queer, as, I guess, the humanity's equivalent, like, in a regular gene, so that, like, Mm-hmm. An outlet mall. And the idea that if you act upon that, you are basically being an affront to God and you're offending God and you shall thus be punished. So you were made this way, but you dare not act on it because you will go to hell. Right. And right. so while we were having another conversation about my sexuality, she just acknowledged that and I know you're born gay, but if you have sex and get hit by a bus, I don't know where you're going. So it's this idea that I'm supposed to essentially not lead a full life, not have pleasure, not date, mm-hmm. be ashamed of myself, and essentially a maybe. Like maybe you'll die and then get to live. And I just find that to be kind of ridiculous. And so while we were talking and she's just saying, I said, well, girl, I can't date Jesus. What do you want me to do? And that became the title. But it's about the conversation I had with my mom and continue to have with my mom. I really love that sentiment because I think with family in particular, in life in general, it's very difficult to insist on pleasure right. as a right, right? Yes. That you mm. you should, you have every single right to live a joyful, pleasurable life, yeah. sex included, right? But it's so hard to have 
to talk to your family, right? And insist on it. It's so interesting. Sex is everywhere, but Americans collectively, we have such very little understanding about our bodies. Sex ed isn't really required in most of the country. And even if you're talked about sex, it's usually within the context of just procreation. That's it. So a lot of people don't know anything about their bodies, what to do with them. Especially gay people. And so that... Oh, please. Straight people know probably (laughs) less. (laughs) Just speaking from experience. It was so interesting. I mentioned in the book, my mom, I don't ever remember not knowing where babies came from. And I remember my mom just being like... That struck me, yeah. Oh, yeah, I told you at three. My mom's a nurse. She Mm. takes care of new mothers. So she's very matter-of-fact, particularly Mm. about that kind of thing. And I recall in the book how I was literally walking to get, I don't know, something from the refrigerator and the show was on. She just was like, yeah, you punch the tip of the condom and you do that. It's like the banana thing. And I was like 12 and I had growing breasts (laughs) and having sex. She wasn't encouraging, but she was very like, yeah, because no kids. She was blunt about sex in that respect, but nothing else. I think that's very true of a lot of people, like to Mm -hmm. your point. It was interesting because I think one small critique I got from some reviewer who tagged me online was that she worried that my overt parent discussions of sex would alienate people. And I think that's one, because people are taught to feel icky about sex, and Mm -hmm. also they don't really consume queer people, particularly men, talking about their sexuality and actually living it out. And the idea that that should make anyone squirm is very telling. So I don't think I was that, I mean, I'm vulgar, but I wasn't that detailed, but I wanted to talk about that because we don't have those conversations, particularly like the awkwardness and not knowing what you're doing. Right. Can I actually ask you, one of the things that's, interesting to me about the book, and I think resonates here, is that there's a couple of different moments when you talk about basically feeling vulnerable. And sometimes that is the result of blackness or queerness, sometimes Mm. both, right, or something else. And I'm wondering, how did you find the ability to either use that vulnerability, like navigate it in some way, and then how in this kind of thing that you're talking about, nobody wants to really hear about sex, they don't want to hear about queer sex, how did you find the voice in which to write about that stuff in the way that you do? I think a lot of it is based on the fact that the way we grew up and how chaotic it was, it was largely secretive and nobody talked about it outside of the house or we barely Mm. talked about it inside of the house. So I carried that with me a lot and then there was something that happened. I didn't put that well, I mentioned it, but like very quickly, but calling the police and there was an incident and everyone around the neighborhood already knew because you can hear him, you can hear what's going on. I think that got to a point where I needed to open up about that with people. And then while it took me much longer to do the same with my sexuality, it's just little by little in my early 20s in particular, I'd like to not, you have to break the cycle of silence because mm-hmm. you're definitely, I'm definitely raised in a school of thought that you don't tell people your business because information can be weaponized. And my mom, you know, she helped desegregate high schools. She was not treated very well by white people. And so I understand to an extent what she means. But at the same time, I don't think I would be alive or I would not, things would be more screwed up if I didn't open up. I don't have the ability to keep it in the way that she and others do. For me, once I actually started to open up, particularly in my work, I think that's the best work that I've actually done. That's always been the work that's resonated most with people. For me, it was just cathartic to get it out. But I'm glad that people are appreciating that and in their own way kind of connecting to the material. But for me, it just was kind of a selfish act in that I needed to get it out. Do you think that's a generational thing, the uh, like holding it back versus actually expressing those I think kind to, of things? for the most part it's generational. But I, to an extent, you could say that, you know, we have as much access to each other than ever, but 
not saying it was necessarily fake, but we only we typically present our best selves. So even online, mm-hmm. you could be looking at an entire feed. You could look at someone every day, even someone you're friends with, and they might not be telling you exactly everything. I think we also don't really allow a space for, I don't say necessarily weakness, but vulnerability, like mm-hmm. for struggle and to open up about it. Because I mean, I still keep some things to myself, but I think it's generational, but I think my generation younger isn't completely healed from that. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to hear you say that because it sounds like sort of the flip side of the same coin. Like mm-hmm. both sides of the coin are about survival. Right. And that your mother has figured out how what, to survive for her. How to survive, right? But for you, it's exactly the opposite. It's, yeah, and that's the same way we feel about religion. The religion she believes in so feverishly and so passionately is it's kept her alive. And I get that yeah. and I respect that. Where we differ and where we just do not align is that her interpretation of religion makes me not want to live or it makes me have a life that's not whole. Yeah, it doesn't allow you to live. Yeah, that's the disconnect that we have. But yes, I get her. I don't think she completely... I think she actually understands, but she doesn't want to. Because also, if religion is that important to you, and particularly just faith, if you have to question that such a major aspect of your faith, then you end up questioning everything else. And if you keep questioning everything, then you won't have that faith anymore. Mm -hmm. And then what do you have? Particularly if you use that faith to carry you through so many awful things difficulty through much of your life so it's also you know you're protecting yourself yeah these are like the conversations I will never I don't think get to have with her because this is a wall <laughs> you hit but I will say yeah. my mother loves me the best way she knows how to and I do know she even if we don't agree even if we kind of may hurt each other I know that she's doing it with the intention that she thinks she's protecting me yeah. as a mother that's yeah. what makes it so complicated to write about and talk about and live but I know it comes from like a decent, loving place. Okay, well, to change topic a little bit, to talk about, since you can't date Jesus, let's talk about dating. Yes. So (laughs) one of the things that I kind of liked and I found resonated with me in reading your story is that I think, I suppose I wonder if you would agree with this, that you're kind of a romantic. Like you talk about wanting to have, he's smiling a little bit, which oh, makes no. you feel Oh no, I feel like I've you... been caught. <laughs> no, I feel like no one's actually said it, but in my mind I've thought that. So what I mean by this is that there are I'm moments a bit of a simp. when, well, because you talk about having, you know, wanting your first sexual experience to be with somebody that you deeply cared about, wanting it to oh, yeah. kind of happen in a particular way. You also have on the one hand, which I can also relate to, to a certain extent, this kind of like, my wedding day fantasy. Yes. But then also like, yeah, but I don't really, I don't know if I really want to get married. Yeah. I didn't really imagine that for myself. That, that you ping know, pong between like, yeah. cynicism and oh, lovey-dovey. Exactly. But yeah. I feel that it's like there's not a lot of space in at least media representations of gay culture. And I think this gets inside your head also right. as a gay person of that kind of like, oh, yeah, I want maybe sex and something else. Like, yes. Or, you know what yeah. I'm saying? Like, that it's, it's... If I could speak in Janet Jackson, there's a song she has called 24 Play. It starts <laughs> off very romantic, and then it goes right into, like, the nasty part, which is very Janet whispery. Mm-hmm. That's my ideal situation. Like, that song. Yeah, to have it's both a, of it's those It's a nice things. mix, because I think the former brings out more of the latter in me and less awkward. Thank you for saying that. I am more of a... I like the joke that I'm dead inside, but I actually think people can see the early Mariah Carey's ballad in me. It's, it's very... I don't think I hide it as well as I think I do. I try to keep cool. It's not working. Clearly, you saw through me. Um, we can hear the trills yes. from here, yeah. Now, that means the other boys can see through me. Um, 
I just remember one critique, and I keep bringing it up because it's just funny. A different person, the publisher, the main overall, thought that my book had been done before, which I thought was very interesting. Because what my, was the comp title he, that they were did referencing? He say I didn't. I never got that. I just was commuting through my agent, and we both shared befuddlement and frustration at the yeah. comment. But I will say, typically, you just only get sex if you get anything, mm-hmm. or you get the pain of just being rejected, particularly from queer black writers. Because I write in the book, like you typically. You only get intersectionality often in the context of a black guy complaining about a white man not finding them mm-hmm. sexually attractive, which sexual racism is an issue. But if you're only consuming blackness, black queerness in the context of white validation sexually, that's problematic and befuddling to me using that word again. But a lot of things confuse me. But I wanted to just like in everything that I wrote about, I wanted to be a little bit more complicated and nuanced. And I think the only thing maybe I read like although it was two white guys. Like, when I read Giovanni's Room, I think what scared me about it at first is that, I mean, I haven't read the book in forever, but I remember the feeling that even though it was complicated, there was, like, a sense of romance to it. There was... Oh, yeah. And I had never really consumed gay people that way, particularly in depictions. It was just, like, death, or even in fiction, which was hard for me to read. Like, it was mostly, like, hysteria, like the download thing, or some kind of... Nothing, like, romantic. That was, like, the one thing that I could kind of think of. And that scared me at first because that made it more real. Like, oh, this isn't just sexual acts because you're essentially told you're a deviant, Mm -hmm. perverse. Mm -hmm. So to read it that way is, yeah, I'm a little (laughs) lovey-dovey. I hope I answered that. Yeah, (laughs) you did. You're listening to the LARB Radio Hour, recorded at KPFK Studios in sunny Studio City. We now return to our conversation with Michael Arsenault, author of I Can't Date Jesus, Love, Sex, Family, Race, and Other Reasons I've Put My Faith in Beyonce. So I've been like out of that kind of like dating game for a while. And I often joke sometimes with my partner that, you know, like I wouldn't even know what to do in Mm -hmm. the age of apps. Like I see like all of our like friends on apps and stuff. And I'm just like, that's like a part time job. Well, I clearly don't do well with apps. Well, yeah. So he's ended up in my apartment. So. Oh, bed bugs. I don't know what that's the hell right. was. Yeah. Yes. Where you got you I woke up with like scars. welts and a rash. Yes. That's terrible. Um, but so like, how do you kind of see modern dating? Mm-hmm. Like, is it fine, whatever? And also, where is dating better? New York or LA? Um, or Houston, I guess. You can also talk about Houston. It's one of those things. It's one of those, again, where like you, in theory, have so much more access to people, yet it can be challenging because in that regard people can just bounce around and people forget i prefer to meet people in person that's an ideal Mm. situation i get the purpose of the apps at from a seamless for sex perspective Mm -hmm. or just like the thing is that it's still very hard to meet people so i do believe when they meet friendships or boyfriends from like the apps i get it i don't think it works the best for me based Mm. on stuff that i say in the book and tinder like i've tried but like i've literally only been on one tinder date you match people and they don't really respond or it just doesn't go anywhere. It's like annoying. The Literally the only social media app that I've actually ended up meeting people from is Instagram and like DM. Oh, okay. I think Instagram DM is helpful in terms of like if you're going to date by phone. But if I can, I, get, I like to meet people in person because it's just better that way because that actually lets me know if I really want to be around you afterwards but that doesn't happen so thank you instagram (laughs) (laughs) actually well this is kind of a question for both of you but have you found that kind of romance even if it is brief i mean eric you've been married for how long you and dan i don't know okay you are in trouble wait no no no, i'm not i'm not i can tell you that we've been together for for 
I'm going to call Dan for 12 right years, now. 12 years, almost 13. Okay. Um, I so think been we've together? been married for five. Good enough. <laughs> right, um, we rounded. We round, yeah, we rounded. So from your point of view, what is romance like in, in that kind of relationship? And then, Michael, from your point of view... How how do you how do you live queer romance? Is yeah, there a way to do it? I'm still learning. <laughs> yeah, I think my thing. So my partner has a um, Dan has a much more romantic aspect to That's our funny. first meeting because he. This is like so sad. It makes me so upset because I don't have the better story of the two of us. But when we first met, he looked across this like dance floor at like a mixed club in um, New York. It, it was like gay, straight, by whatever. And he saw me. He was determined to cheat on somebody um, because he was, he was upset at like a boyfriend that he had left back in Florida. And he looked at me and he said to himself, I'm going to be with that person for a very long time. Really? Oh, I love that. I, oh, my God. Right? It's the best story. That's and so then beautiful. I looked at him and I was like, I want to be in those jeans. Yes. <laughs> and so, the, you know, and so that, and like. God and sweetness, my center. <laughs> yes. well, oh my God, that's true. It's the Janet Jackson song. And then it, and then it was like he, um, you know, we, it was not, we didn't have sex until the third date. And I literally was about to be like, this dude is weird. Like he, he wants to make out whenever we're together and like, but he doesn't want to go home with me. Like I'm well, out. He, he knew you, you guys had years. I think that was the reason that it worked because every other guy that I had been with before then, it was like, we'd have sex and then I'd like almost immediately lose interest. I'm that weird person because I, I like someone and I've tried not to completely because I'd rather build because, I, for me at least, I gotta work that out with a, a Fraser Crane soon. But if I have <laughs> sex with you too early, it might make me have a disconnect. It shouldn't, but it it happens. And I can I'd tell you really that like waiting from a sample group of one, mm. waiting works. <laughs> a little bit of waiting. Well, not a waiting little bit. Not, yeah, yeah, not yeah, yeah. to wait a year, but It'll like make them forever. Oh, God, yeah. that'd be horrible. Yeah, I'd, I'd leave me. But here's my <laughs> thing about like one of the things that drives me a little crazy about like. Friends of mine that like, I think that there are people that don't want to be in a relationship. That's not for them. And I respect that. I think that's great. I sometimes wonder if I'm not that person. That's but funny. I also think there are a lot of people who really want to be in a relationship, but they don't want to do the self-work that being in a relationship takes. That's true. My relationship is one of the best things that I've had in my life. It is also one of the most painful and difficult and slogging things I've ever done in my life. If, God forbid, like my partner died tomorrow, mm. not doing it again. <laughs> um, We're really? done. I'm out. I got friends. Okay. I got a cat. I don't believe you. When that you. cat dies, I'll get another cat. I don't it's know just, if I it's a lot. And you change in a relationship. Whereas everybody else that I, everybody that I talk to that are single and dating, they want this other person to be so either some fantasy version of a person that is not a real person that they would date, or they're like, well, he needs to change this. He needs to change this. He needs to change this. Well, oh my God, he he eats lasagna. I mean, oh, people do. I, you know, it's weird. I've been one of those people. I had to realize you're I was, an anti lasagnaer. I was. <laughs> I realized I was. I was saying I wanted to be in a relationship, but didn't really wasn't doing like it's beyond like the issues with the physical intimacy. It was also like just kind of a, emotionally like not connecting, like giving them just enough, but that was to keep them at bay, mm. which is a bit manipulative and not a good trade. But I was attracting unattainable people because I was unattainable and. 
if I really said I wanted to be in a relationship, I, I had to be more particular about my uh, words and how I use them if I actually meant it. So, oh, and to answer your question about dating, mm-hmm. um, I used to think dating in New York was the best, but I went on a date while I'm here. So <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and maybe L.A. is, yeah, I think L.A. might be better. Um, but like, how, have you, how do you find it? Is it difficult? Is it like, do you like it? I actually like to go on dates, even if I can be a little, I think I'm, uh, I think I'm charming, but I can be awkward. I'm still, if I really like you, mm. but I really make an effort to be invested and interested in, but sometimes I could just be a little, sh- there's a hint of shyness that might come out that people probably wouldn't expect because no one approaches me. So I always have to kind of initiate everything. Apparently I look, um, I have a resting bitch So face. that comes off oh, as aloofness yeah. or like haughtiness on I've, your part. I've been accosted by actually progressive straight dudes who are like, yo bro, you got a resting bitch face. Smile. <laughs> Which was sweet really? in its intent. Yes, it was very, very sweet. He told me I had resting bitch face and I was like, you're right. I'll work on that, John. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> John, if you're listening, <laughs> yeah. he's working on it. Um, okay, let's get back to the book. In terms of writing the book and getting a book out. Can you mm. talk a little bit about the transition from you had gone to school for journalism, mm. you worked as a journalist. What was the transition like to sort of more personal writing, right? Because mm. journalism is not that. No. You do not have, you don't have a voice in that, really. You stick to the facts, you convey the information. I've never really called myself a journalist, even though I know I technically fit the bill. Um, yeah. I initially wanted to be like a news anchor. That didn't happen. Um, I kind of fell into writing full-time. I've done mostly cultural criticism, political commentary, so at least I get to keep my sense of self. I mean, I've done yeah. a lot of work that where I can't, my opinion doesn't matter. But I've been trying to get a book done for a very long time. I mean, everything happens exactly how I was supposed to, but it was a very long road. Like, literally, when I lived in L.A. six years ago, I had a proposal that I was actively trying to make happen. I still think that would have been, like, a, a good book, but it wouldn't have been this book. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, But it was a very long road because, to be blunt, um, the attitude was... You're black and gay, you're too niche. And when people did want me to write, they were interested in me, but it's like, you're Cuban, I don't really want to smash. There's something off about you. <laughs> One, po- I think everyone wanted to kind of, they were like, you're great, but let me mold you into something else. Like, I'm, I keep making these jokes, but like, one publisher basically wanted to be like homosexual Ta-Nehisi Coates. Another one basically would be Bernie Sanders of Sissies. I think in that, I think the, <laughs> because I'm known for political like commentary, I think they mm-hmm. wanted me to be overtly political, but I think the mm-hmm. book was po- a political statement in of itself. It didn't have to be beaten over the head. Um, so I would have these two-hour meetings with these lovely publishers who would go back to my agent. I love him. Make him change everything about this, and then maybe we'll give him a deal. But my editor, I remember during this very frustrating, because that was one thing, too, that was really frustrating, that there are sometimes people just don't like what you do, and you have to kind of take it or mm. take the criticism or not. I was getting very extensive complimentary no's. Oh, this book is so great. I mean, oh, this, this book sounds like it would be so good. I love his voice. He's so funny and smart. And then literally pinpointing characters within the purpose, like, I hate that guy. Tell him, screw him. But at the end, yeah, I can't sell this. And so that's frustrating because you can't do anything with that. You're saying, right. and one who's actually black, because there are very few black people in publishing, um, essentially said in so many words, and it wasn't that this far away, that black people were too homophobic and white people don't care what black people think. Um, but white people don't care about black people. And... I rejected those notions because I just knew if I got to write the book that I wanted to write, it would do well. Mm. So um, my editor told me to be patient, and then I did get a deal. And then there was someone who really wanted, somebody I really admire in publishing wanted to talk, but I knew it would be another maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just, I knew I needed to do this. 
it wasn't a huge advance that I was longing for that some of my friends got. So it was difficult trying to write a book and be freelancing at the same time. It was actually, I couldn't do it. So there was a point I had to stop and just yeah. kind of disconnect and get the book out because I knew I had this opportunity. I needed to make the most of it. Mm-hmm. And I had some base material from years of trying to get it out, but a lot of that wanted needed to be rewritten or just fleshed out better. So it was, a, uh, it was exhausting. Um, but it's rewarding in that I thankfully made the New York Times bestseller list. I'm like very proud about that. Um, Congrats. Thank you. I I really appreciate it. And it, it's, it's had me here. It's had me on Terry Gross. I'm realizing people who I knew would like the book if they actually got a hold of it. But for them to get a hold of it is like really encouraging because I've actually gotten a lot of emails from white evangelicals. Initially, my friend sent me a, a very impassioned um, YouTube review from someone who related to the the core issues about religion. She's like, I don't think enough people are talking about this book. Like, you need to, like, read this. And then I started getting these messages on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter. And they definitely people definitely find your email. Um, really nice <laughs> messages. And a lot of people, and I get why, but they go out of there like, I'm X identity, but I like this book. Uh-huh. Um, because, I, I mean, I all I did was write a coming-of-age story, but it was from the perspective of someone country, black, queer, and Southern. It's yep. not... And I also think if I were white it would have been easier for a lot of people to process because I didn't want to lean into pathology. There are a lot of dark moments to my life and I easily could have lean, leaned into that and gave a, like pathology porn and got a whole lot more upfront. But I don't even think the book would have done as well or it would have made me feel gross. Like I love David Sedaris. Like I love to be able to like make fun of your the, like the craziness around you. Because everyone in my family, no matter how chaotic, we're all funny. Mm-hmm. Uh, humor, as much as religion, has a lot to do with why all of us keep going. And I just wanted to do something I felt kind of really captured my spirit, but it was difficult in getting people to trust that if you pimp me out correctly, if you, or in, honestly, I was very doing a lot of it myself. I mean, yeah. I'm thankful for the work like they have done, but it's definitely like me doing a lot of it myself, hitting up people, like asking for you favors. Have to. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think people get it now. It shouldn't have been that difficult because. Yeah, I'm still, like, tripping on the idea that, like, this book has been done before. Well, can we... That doesn't make any sense. Exactly. I, I see a lot of books. I've not seen this book before. I, I'm confused. I'm <laughs> but perplexed, but it's, it's fun. It's, well, so one of the things that... There's a moment in the book that, towards the end where you talk about this, and one of the moments that stuck with me is when you describe kind of being slotted into a particular kind of role with freelance assignments. And what you say is, and I'm reading from the book here, with more traditional outlets, whenever commissioned to write about subject matter that's more personal, I've learned over time that the more pathos is involved, the better it will be received. You know, because it's so hard to be Poe Black me. Here are the topics mainstream outlets love for me to write about from the perspective of a gay black man, black homophobia, AIDS, and sexual racism, right? And then you go on in the rest of that chapter to talk about why all the stories that we end up getting told or that mm-hmm. get assigned for those are the wrong story. Right. They're not when they talk about AIDS, they're not talking about actual health outreach. Exactly. They're trying to talk about something else, right? Sexual racism is the same thing. And black homophobia, like you said, it's like black people are homophobic, white people are homophobic, exactly. everybody's homophobic. And not in some like weird inverse proportion. Yes. So one of the things that I'm interested in is what you were talking about in terms of how to resist that, because it is hard as a freelance writer when you are you have to make money. like, I got to make money and here are things that sell. So like, I'm interested on the one hand in how you resisted that temptation, but then also the kind of like, I keep wondering like, who are these stories 
actually serving, right? Like, what? Like, do you know what I'm saying? It's like, like, why is somebody reading that? Like the the sexual racism stories, for example, the people that that affects, they probably already know that, yeah, right. That's not news to them. So I'm wondering, like, who else is this for? It's it's. I think otherness in general is typically consumed in terms of pathology. Like, it's awful to be you. You play into mm-hmm. essentially like a white ego. And like that we're less than and this is why and kind of downtrodden because that's look if you not to bring him up, but like the Trump rally, like what do you have to lose? Like Chicago, like you live in hell. Right. But even if it was ignorantly communicated, that is actually a wide hell view for a lot of people. They think just black people live in slums or like Latinx Mm -hmm. people live in. That's their perception because how they consume us typically through the news or TV film that's largely the representations you get. There are some variances, but then they always think that make, you're just exceptional rather than that actually being a lot of people's norms. It wasn't my norm, but I knew that it existed. Right. Um, I think for a lot of writers, particularly now, wages are stagnated. There are not a lot of jobs available. And even if you do in media, like you could, they could go anyway, depending on like an algorithm change or yeah. something pulling yeah. the plug. So and freelance doesn't pay like it used to. I remember no. when it was like 50 cents or a dollar a word. Yeah. It, not it, even and that the, long ago. The, the rates go up and down. Like when I started, they were incredibly low because it was a great recession and everything. Mm-hmm. The sky was falling. And then it got better, and now I can already see a dip. Like, I personally see another bubble happening very soon, so I am yeah. I would like to just go into television, just get me out, <laughs> save me from this, save me out the media um, ghetto. I can't do it anymore. Um, but no, I just, I can be stubborn, but I think I'm stubborn about things that I think really matter. Like, for me, mm. you know, some people don't necessarily, like, I've written for black media and mainstream media, and I think, and now in queer media, I think if I... Because for some people, if you only want to be in mainstream publications and you are in other, particularly if you are black, you probably will be asked largely to write about something black. Mm-hmm. Instead of a lot of publications thinking, I need to hire writers who are in- inclusive in their thought and treat Latinx stories, Asian stories, black stories, people who are Muslims, like their stories as just human stories rather than being, oh, let me get someone just because that's the only person who can. T-. In, some, in some ways, you do need black people to be telling black stories. Sure, but yeah. but to your point, if, if this is a health story, make it about that. Don't make it this something else. Like, don't make it. I don't know. Um, let me not name a movie because I don't know who's listening anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. Yes, let me behave. I've been. We'll move on. We'll yeah. move on. But you know, it, it's it's frustrating for me. I just knew if I didn't if if that's all you wanted from me, then I'm at least gonna go work for at least some black media outlet. Think make sure my income will still be fine. Yeah. Uh, to supplement my income, but I struggle for a second. <laughs> Long week. Uh, supplement my income and not necessarily deal with that. And then if I do get assigned these things, I write exactly what I am what I feel. I might write against the narrative you thought, but you agreed to it and you're either going to publish it or you're not. There was one since I recall, like the Washington Post, like it was, I pitched a very, I'm very specific. And I think after a while, my voice, if you come to me in particular, you know what you're getting. Mm. And yet the headline played into something that I exactly didn't want it to I was like, you need to take that down. You are going to do irreparable damage to my career. Take it down, or we're going oh, I to remember have a that. Yeah, this is in the book. Yeah, yeah. Can you tell well, listeners who might not have read that? It was a. Um, there's a solo section um, in the Washington Post. I wrote. I wanted to write about becoming comfortable with dating non-black men, and I was in particular like in New York. I wasn't really attracting black men. But response, it was more like Latinx men, and and that, it's an ethnicity, so some were black, but it was a specific type that doesn't really identify as black, and they weren't, um, or they weren't. And so that was new for me because I think I write a lot about how black queer people are represented. And so you don't typically see images of two black queer men together. And so I think that was a little me doing too, 
putting too much pressure on myself to be the change that I speak of, but I can only control what was happening at the time. So I was writing about wanting to have that because it's not that I'm not, I'm attracted to attractive people and that can come in any form, (laughs) but there are, and particularly this around the time when more black people were being killed by the hands of the state. So it's, it was triggering. Like you, you you wanted familiarity or you just wanted someone that you didn't have to explain so much to in those moments, or at least someone that was really understanding. So for me, I just, me once again, like letting go of an ideal and just letting being human and letting come with May and not thinking that it said anything about me while still being able to advocate for the things that I advocate about. And she took it more as a, well, she, I think the headline was something to the effect of, I'm, on, I'm only now learning to date black men. I was like, that's not what I said. I said I've only Nor was dated, it true to your biography, right? right? Yeah. And then there were, someone made a joke how, I think I'm saying it wrong, Abita, and like I said my, he said your ideal black man is probably at a crawfish boil Drinking an abita, or better, how you say it? For, sorry, Louisiana. Um, <laughs> and she told, she's a white woman, told me that I was being stereotypical. I was like, I'm a black man from Houston. My last name is Arsenault. Do you really think me referencing crawfish and like beer or brown liquor is stereotypical? Why you think you're? Con- are you literally con- concerned trolling me about being black? You don't worry about that. I, and it just was like so many things that she kept trying to change. It's like you are literally perpetuating the very narrative that I don't. I do not want to be another black person in some mainstream publication talking about white men don't want to have sex with me, push me in the street. It's so awful. Yeah. that yeah. And that was such a frustrating uh, process. And I was mad at myself for initially agreeing to it because I was trying to do things that was going to help set me up to show that I, I can exist in these spaces with personal essays and I can sell a book. So right. it, it it was well-intentioned, but it was a frustrating process. Um, do, you th- do you think... Another thing I kept thinking, how old are you? Uh, 34. Oh, okay. So we're almost exactly the same age. I'm, I guess I'll fess up since you did. I'm 35 years old. Um, <laughs> and, uh, but so when we were growing up, there were, on the one hand, there's this, it was like a double-edged sword, mm-hmm. which there was a lot more media representation of right. gay people. Not really gay people of color. Right. I mean, I get, well, real world, it got like Ish. complicated-ish. But how did you on the one hand i would sometimes feel that it's like oh my god wow like i can actually see people that are definitely not me but like maybe mm-hmm. could be ish and that was interesting and affirming in some ways but then also it was like oh my god like there's like this thing is like more known now yeah. or um so i'm wondering like who were your kind of like gay idols whether they were gay or just kind of like gay icons in that way that they don't necessarily have to be gay and like how do you think that's changed I didn't really have any I think well um, in terms of who I on television I think um, for a lot of people Karamo Brown on the real world um, was their first glimpse who now is on Queer Uh, Eye Queer Eye I think that might have been the first time I saw someone like oh but to be honest I haven't at least in television really seen anyone that I feel like reflects me My, my goal is to create something that finally does but i haven't really seen i and, and i in writing a book i kind of looked a lot towards women mm. to actually teach me about being a man like the kind of man i wanted to be and like my sense of strength um as i write my father was in my life but that's and in the book complicated um i think my mom is the strongest person i know um mm. so i write about her and my sister um women like janet jackson and beyond like kind of how they inform me i didn't necessarily have like a gay idol um i think ryan Phillippe helped me 
realize I was gay <laughs> with the pool scenes and Cruel Intentions. Yeah, I think Joey every Lawrence gay boy and like Will like, Smith. Yeah, I think them. But I had there's no one I like look to and really. I mean, do you think we've gotten better about that? Like I, I think, industry in general. We were talking before the show started about Pose and how that yeah. was like doing some different things. Well, they have people like Lena Waithe they can look to. Um, yeah. Justin Simeon. You can look at Janet Mock. I think there's broader representation. I think I just. We still have a long ways to go, mm-hmm. but but the fact that we have even a small few now is big progress, which is encouraging and also like di- disturbing. But there are more people now, I think, slowly but surely. Uh, like I love Crystal West from the um, the Re podcast. I think she's there's not a lot of black lesbian representation, so that's interesting. But there's not a lot of not a lot of us. We're still kind of getting up there. Actually, the last episode of the Read like made me cry because. She sort of announced that Kid Fury had gotten this deal right. with HBO and was so so the the read is a podcast hosted by Kid Fury and a, a woman named Crystal, and they also mentioned you, Crystal. Yes, you did. I, pre- I appreciate Crystal. That was really nice. Um, a f- friend uh, alerted me. Yeah, no, she's great. Um, I think she's actually a really great writer herself. Um, I would love to read more of her writing. I'm gonna stop bugging her about that, but she was very kind about the book. And that meant a lot because that's someone I think can actually get my experience. And one thing I've been mm-hmm. really moved by, a lot of black queer people, black queer Southern folks in particular, are like they really understand my perspective. And so many people are like, I have not had this before, and I'm really glad that I have it now. And thankfully there are other people um, that are you know, doing the same thing. But that's been really nice. That's been really affirming because it, yeah, I, I wrote the book that I wish I had growing up. So it's nice that people are kind of, receiving it and being like, wow, I really haven't seen myself on the page in like this way. So that that makes me feel really good. It makes me feel great that I actually stuck to my guns, even if it came with a lot of difficulties, but I'm glad I did. We've been speaking with Michael Arsenault, author of I Can't Date Jesus, Love, Sex, Family, Race, and Other Reasons I've Put My Faith in Beyonce. Michael, it's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thanks Thank so much. Thank you so much for having me. I had a Thank great time. You've been listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you like the show, leave us a comment and tell us what you think. The LARB Radio Hour's executive producers are Eric Newman, Medea Ocher, and Kate Wolf. Our engineer is William Broughton. Production assistance is provided by William Broughton, Eleanor Duke, Lauren Kinney, and Jake Levins. Special thanks to Alan Minsky, who is no one's moral conscience, for production assistance and to Emerson College for the use of their studio in Hollywood. Tom Lutz is the publisher and editor-in-chief of the Los Angeles Review of Books. 